Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We ask now that you would speak to us today, Lord. Teach us the truths of your scripture that we may live to your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, you can open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11 or, or scroll there on your phone. We'll be looking at verses 17 to 34. So uh, my dad had nine brothers and sisters growing up, a big family. So you can imagine when they started getting married and having kids of their own, family gatherings got to be really large. And my grandma knew how to cook. But seriously, when you start getting 30, 40 people at, se- uh, at Sunday dinner, there's a point where it's just not manageable to cook. So we turned to the greatest social invention in the history of mankind, the potluck. You love potlucks, don't you? Think back to some really great potlucks you've been to in your life. You get really good food because most people bring stuff that they're really good at making. They bring the good stuff. They've been making it for years. They know what they're doing. I have an aunt who passed away 20 years ago, and to this day I remember what she used to bring to potlucks. People bring the good stuff. Also, potlucks are great for people who are on special diets or if they're just picky eaters because there's a lot of variety. How many of you like to go through the line just to try a little bit of everything? Like round one is the sample round, right? (laughs) Round two, targeted acquisition, right? That's where you load up on the stuff that made it through round one. And the stuff that makes it through to to like round three, that's the stuff that uh, potluck dreams are made of. Potlucks are a great thing, but in today's passage, it seems that the Corinthians had turned the Lord's Supper into a potluck, and it was a potluck where people didn't want to share. People with money were eating great stuff, while the poor were going home hungry, and Paul is not happy about this. Let's take a look at what he tells the Corinthians, starting at verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. If So one person is hungry, while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give you instructions about other matters whenever I come. Praise be to God for his word. Please be seated. So, uh, Pastor John has been preaching through this book, and when he got to chapter 11, he told us that there was a shift in the letter. Paul is talking now in these several chapters about how believers are to behave when they gather together. Today, we're going to look at this one particular problem that Paul was addressing, centered around the Lord's Supper. We'll see how the Lord's Supper shifts our focus back to the person of Christ, to the work of Christ, and to the body of Christ. Okay, so first, the Lord's Supper shifts our focus back to the person of Christ. So I mentioned the potluck where people didn't want to share. What's going on here? How did they end up in this situation? Well, when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, it was done at the Passover dinner, and that dinner was definitely a meal. We also know when early Christians ate together, they often, uh, when early Christians met, they often had a meal together. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his famous Pentecost sermon. 3,000 people were added to their number. And then it tells us this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Most people think the breaking of bread included both a meal as well as the sacrament. So the line between eating a meal and taking the Lord's Supper was a little blurry. But from everything we've learned about Corinth in this sermon series, we would expect in a city like this, things could go horribly wrong. And they did. Remember, Pastor John told us that there were many pagan temples in Corinth. When the Greeks offered sacrifices, there were feasts involved. And the Jews also, when they would offer sacrifices, they'd also have a feast. It seems that the, the Corinthians were adopting these practices as part of the Lord's Supper. Look, the pagans and Jews are having feasts. We want one too. So they, they co-opted this practice of a Greek-style potluck, turning the sacrament into something a bit more like a social dinner than a serious remembrance. Verse 21 says, For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. Other translations say each one goes ahead with his own meal. So they're not eating at the same time. People are showing up late, and the early people aren't waiting for them. Now, it would be easy to roll your eyes at the late people and tell them to get their act together. But in this time period, free time was a luxury of the rich. We know some early Christians were rich. The rich person can easily knock off work a little early to show up at a Christian gathering. The merchant class might have a little bit of a harder time, but some Christians were poor, even slaves. They get done when the boss says they're done, not before. So they weren't late because they were managing their time poorly. But the early people weren't waiting for them. And verse 21 goes on. One person is hungry while another is drunk. So they're not waiting and they're not sharing. The meal had turned into something divisive. It was a place where people were being dishonored. 
Note Paul's tone here. He is not happy about this. Remember, Paul commended the Corinthians. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, he commends the Corinthians. He says, I praise you. The first half of this chapter we looked at two weeks ago, he was basically saying, here's a few pointers, but overall, good job. But in the second half of the chapter, he's saying, bad job. Verse 17 says, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Their Lord's Supper practice isn't just unhelpful, it's actually damaging. What they're doing is not slightly missing the mark. It's not something they can tweak a little and fix. It's a mess. Moving into verse 18, Paul mentions the divisions in the church. Remember, disunity was an issue Paul brought up way back in chapter 1 of this book, right after his opening prayer. Pastor John preached on this back on February 9. You can go back and consult your notes. <laughs> These divisions are a huge theme of 1 Corinthians. So it seems that the Lord's Supper is this issue with the Lord's Supper is one manifestation of the disunity Paul's heard about. The only good thing that comes out of this disunity is that it helps make clear who's really in this to follow Christ, he says in verse 19. But he's not done chewing them out. Verse 20 says, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, what you're doing, don't even call it the Lord's Supper anymore. And verse 22, it almost sounds like Paul is yelling at them, doesn't it? Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Paul is in full-on rebuke mode. This was less than 20 years after Christ had instituted the Lord's Supper. Most of the disciples who were there that night with Jesus were still alive, and the Corinthians had already turned it into something perverse. So this is the problem. They've turned the Lord's Supper into something perverse. How does Paul address this? Well, after the chewing out in verse 22, we see in verse 23 to 26 a famous passage, a passage we read every month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the outpouring. Remember, verse 22 is a barrage of questions that all have the word you in them. But verse 23 to 26 are about Christ. And that gets to the heart of something Paul is doing in this passage. After this rebuke, in effect, Paul is saying, hey, Corinth, stop being selfish because it's not about you, it's about Christ. The Lord's Supper points us to the person of Christ. So that's where our focus should be. Now, I wish I could say that the Corinthians needed this message and we don't. But I think we all know that that's not true. We live in a time when everyone is encouraged to make everything about themselves. Social media exists so we can market ourselves to the world. Hey, look at me. We live in a consumerist culture that persuades us to express our individuality by what we buy, what we consume. I consume special products because I'm a special person. Everything's about me. <clears throat> and this thinking can creep into the church as well. Christ is here to make me feel the way I want to feel, and the church is here to meet my desires. In your mind, it can become about you and not about Christ. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us is, hey, it's not about you. Let's bring the focus back to Christ. 
okay, but what does it look like to focus on Christ? What does that actually mean in practice for a church? Well, one way we can try to understand it is by thinking about the opposite of this. Can you imagine a church where Christ is not the focus? I'm not talking about liberal denominations or prosperity gospel or anything like that. Did you know there are people who really like the idea of church but really don't like the idea of God? There's a secular group called the Sunday Assembly, boasts more than 40 congregations around the world. There's another group called Oasis who has a chapter here in Orlando. They're meeting over on Mills this afternoon, according to their website. There's one in Seattle called the Seattle Atheist Church. These secular congregations don't believe in faith, but they do like certain aspects of religion. They want a sense of community. They don't want to believe anything supernatural, but they want to have a higher purpose and a sense of wonder. They often want to better themselves and help others. So they meet every Sunday, just like we do. They just don't believe in God. At their secular meetings, they have singing. But instead of worshiping the Lord, they sing feel-good pop songs or high-energy anthems like living on a prayer. <laughs> they have someone give a message but the sermons are more like motivational speeches or like inspiring TED Talks. The Seattle Atheist Church encourages members to meditate daily on a book called The Daily Stoic. And they chat over snacks after the service, just like we do here at The Outpouring. <laughs> to an outsider, what they do looks a lot like what we do. In the end, how are we really different from North Orlando Oasis or Seattle Atheist Church. Well, they have motivational speakers who are eloquent. They can keep your intention, they can inspire you. We have Pastor John, who is all of those things too, but that's not why we come to church. We come because Pastor John points us to Christ. We also have a praise team that is talented and works hard to be excellent in what they do. And to be honest, I would pay good money to hear Pastor Trey sing Living on a Prayer. <laughs> but that's not why we come to church. Not because they're talented or entertaining or inspirational. We come because they lead us in worshiping God. They point us to Christ. The Bible. The Bible, which we read every day, points us to Christ. Our fellowship is not just people hanging out. It's the body of Christ. Everything we do here is because of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is the ultimate reminder of this. It's a remembrance of what Christ did for us. It says in verse 23 and again in verse 24, in our busy lives, including our busy church lives, it's easy to start focusing on getting things done and on this or that objective. And we can forget who this is really about. So our Lord, in his wisdom, instituted the Lord's Supper to point us back to him back to the person of Christ, so that's where we should focus. Okay, so the Lord's Supper points us to the person of Christ, and that's where we should focus. But more specifically than that, it points us to the work of Christ. It points us back to what he accomplished here on earth when he gave his life for us. Look where Christ puts the focus in verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Some translations say, broken for you. And then in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Christ puts the focus on the body he gave for you and the blood he shed for you. And then in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper points us to Christ's death. And in doing this, we proclaim what Christ has done for us. We are proclaiming that Christ died for us. We are showing the world who does not know Christ how important Christ's death really was. And this is a huge responsibility. If the Lord suffers a proclamation of his death, can you imagine the situation in Corinth and what that looked like to unbelievers? Can you imagine proclaiming Christ's death by not sharing your food with brothers and sisters who are poor? This is serious business. Paul says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. To take the Lord's Supper and proclaim his death in an unworthy manner invites God's judgment. Verse 29 says, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And verse 30 said, Verse 30 says this judgment can include sickness, or when it says falling asleep, he's talking about death. I don't think it could be stronger or, in, or clearer how important it is not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Let's talk about verse 30 for a bit because it seems a little strange. People died because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And there's no reason to think he's being figurative here or anything like that. People were literally getting sick and dying because of this. Now, of course, don't get from this that when a person is sick, it must be God's punishing them, right? We know this isn't true from the first verses of John 9 and the first verses of uh, Luke 13. Our Savior told us that's not true. Also, this business of people being punished for terrible behavior in church we see this other places in the New Testament. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? They lied to God. They were struck dead on the spot. These things are examples to us, meant to teach us that wickedness in church is especially offensive to God. I hope we can all learn from these examples. All right, so all of this seems a little scary. If you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, it's a really big deal. What can we do then? How can we make sure we're doing this in a worthy manner? Well, Paul gives us some direction here in verse 28. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So that's Paul's solution, to examine yourself. Okay, but what does self-examination look like? How should we do this? Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, suggests that we should examine two things our repentance, and our faith. You're examining your repentance for your sin. When each of us here gave our lives to Christ, we repented from our sins. This means we confessed our sins, not trying to hide or deny them. We told God we were sorry for them, admitting that they were wrong and offensive to God and deserving of punishment. We renounced our sins. We resolved to stop doing them. And that doesn't mean we never sinned again after the day we accepted Christ. We are still sinful men and women, being sanctified by God's grace, becoming more like Christ, but none of us is there yet. We're not sinless. But knowing how offensive our sin is to God, we should hate our sin. 
So when you examine yourself, examine your repentance. Do you really hate your sin? Or do you still have a special love for one particular sin? Is there a sin in your past that you look back on with fondness in your heart? Like Lot's wife looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, Christ said in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. If only sinless people could take the Lord's Supper, we'd all be out of luck. We're all sinners in this room. We all make mistakes. We're all becoming more like Christ. None of us here is there yet. We all need to examine our repentance. Let me give you an example. If you say, God, I know what you say about forgiveness, but I really hate that one colleague of mine, and I will never forgive her for what she said about me. If that's you, have you really repented of your sin? Have you forgotten how much you have been forgiven? If that's your heart, I don't think I'd take the Lord's Supper. But if you said, Lord, I'm having a really hard time loving this colleague of mine right now. I know I should love her. I know I should forgive her. Lord, by your grace, give me the power to do what's right. That's repentance. God is there with mercy. Proverbs 28, 13 says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Right? You have examined yourself. Or if you say, Lord, I visited a website this week that I know I should not have been at. I know what I did is offensive to you, and I'm sorry. Help me to overcome this. If you say that, even if you said the same prayer last week and the week before, no matter how many times you've said it, God is waiting for you with open arms. If that's your heart, you have examined yourself. It's not about being perfect. It's about being repentant and giving it up to God. Now, I should just want to say one more thing about this. We should hate our sin because it's offensive to God. But hating your sin is not the same as hating yourself. Don't hate yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And that's true now, even while you struggle with sin. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, it says in Romans 8. Don't hate yourself, but hate your sin. Examine your repentance. Also examine your faith. Do you trust that Christ has died for you and taken away your sin and guilt and shame? Do you trust in God to keep, to keep his amazing promises to you? If someone looked at your life and the decisions that you have made, would they say, wow, that person really lives like God is real and his promises are true? Examine your faith. And again, this does not mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you never have doubt. It does mean that you're willing to say, God, I trust you enough to follow Christ, even with my doubts. If you do this, you have examined yourself. The Lord's Supper points us to the work of Christ, so it should cause us to examine ourselves in the light of what Christ has done for us. Repent again. Ask the Lord to help you. Renew your face. Ask the Lord to help you. And then take the Lord's Supper. Just don't forget to examine yourself. This is serious business. So the Lord's Supper points us to the person of Christ. It points us to the work of Christ. But it also points us to the body of Christ. 
And because of that, we should honor the body. We see this in verse 29. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In this case, many commentators say, and I am persuaded by their arguments, that Paul is not talking about Christ's physical body here, but the other meaning of Christ's body, the church. So we want to examine ourselves and consider the body and blood of Christ, which he sacrificed for us, but we also need to recognize the body of Christ, that is the church, for which he died. Our brothers and sisters sitting around us, it's not just about me and God. God has placed us as part of a community, and we need to remember that. So how does Paul tell the Corinthians to recognize the body? Well, verse 33 starts off in a way that makes sense. He says, welcome one another. And I looked at a bunch of translations of this. Almost all the other translations say, wait for each other, or something to that effect. Don't go ahead with the Lord's Supper before the poor people can get there. They matter. And this doesn't surprise any of us, right? From what Jesus taught and from throughout the Bible, we see that God has a heart for the poor. <clears throat> but verse 34 is a little bit surprising. Remember, they weren't waiting and they weren't sharing. So you might expect Paul's advice to be wait and share. You might expect Paul to say, Share your food. Hey, rich people who are bringing the good stuff to the potluck, make sure everybody gets some of the good stuff. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So he's clearly instructing them that the Lord's Supper should be separate from a regular meal where you fill your stomach with food. But why? Well, interestingly, I think I may have experienced a little bit of this when I lived in Asia. In Asia, when someone invites you to dinner, not if it's just a close friend maybe, but if it's even slightly formal, then where you sit is a big deal. The guest of honor sits at the far end of the table facing the door, and the host sits right next to them, and then it goes all the way around, and the lowest people sit at the other end with their back towards the door. Where you're sitting, reflects how important you are in the group. And this isn't just true in Asia. This was true for people living in New Testament days as well. We see this in Luke 14, verses 7 to 14, where Jesus notices how everybody wants the good seats at the banquet, and he teaches them not to clamor for the good spots, but to choose a lower spot. So the banquet is not just a place where people are eating. It's a place where people are ranked where there's a clear distinction between who's important and who's not. A banquet is a place where everyone's status is on display. And when you understand that, you start to see why Paul insists that they separate eating as a meal from the Lord's Supper. He's telling us there's no room in the body of Christ for this kind of ranking. There's no room for any believers to consider themselves better than others. Now, this is not how the world works. For example, in corporate America, the CEO has the biggest office, the nice car with a driver, the big paycheck, stock options, and all of that. Regular workers don't talk to the CEO. You don't even go to the floor where his office is. You don't even dare push that button in the elevator. They are so far above you. But Jesus taught us something different, didn't he? 
In Matthew 20, Jesus said this, You know that the ruler, rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who had the right to so much more status than even the greatest CEO, washed the disciples' feet and instructed us to do the same. Sometimes it's tempting to think of church leaders as above the congregation. And it's true, God has given church leaders an authority he doesn't give to everyone. But don't ever make the mistake that pastors or elders or deacons or teachers have some sort of higher rank before God. The authority he, give, he has given them is not one of, look at me, I've arrived, aren't I important? It's a position of service. The Greek word for deacon literally means servant. Leaders are called shepherds in Acts 20, verse 28. It's a responsibility. Leadership within the church should never be about being served or private jets or gold rings or having any kind of status. Before God, the status of a church leader is this, a sinner redeemed by the blood of Christ, the same status as the rest of us. Leaders do have additional authority and additional responsibility, but don't confuse that with status. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. But it's, just not, it's not just about status among church leadership. It's also about other kinds of status that the world assigns to us. For example, when I was at university, I remember there was a status people had based on what Greek letters they were wearing on their clothes. <clears throat> I don't know if people think that way at all at UCF. But if so, <laughs> if so, we need to drop that off at the door when we come to church. Because within this community, we don't rank each other. We don't look down on someone at church who's not part of the important group. Remember also, your Greek organization might provide you with brothers and sisters for life, but your brothers and sisters sitting around you now are for eternity. And you might live in a Greek house for a couple of years, but in our Father's house are many rooms, and Jesus has gone there to prepare a place for us. And that's not for a few years. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm not saying this to put down Greek organizations. This is just an example of the status people have outside of church and the ways that the world gives people status. We can drop those off at the door when we come to church. And there are so many ways that the world assigns status. People admire you because you have an important job. You come from a rich family. You drive a cool car. You're a talented athlete. Those aren't bad things. But the things that the world admires about you mean nothing in the kingdom of God. Paul expressed this best, I think, in Philippians 3. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Everything about you that the world admires, drop those off at the door. Instead, it says, 
welcome one another, wait for one another. Leave the status behind and celebrate what you have in Christ, which is so much better anyway. We're all here to serve one another, not to be admired. So drop your status off at the door. So to conclude, to conclude, brothers and sisters, we saw a serious problem here in Corinth. The Corinthians were practicing the Lord's Supper in a way that was profane. And Paul had to remind them first that the Lord's Supper is not about you and it's not a dinner party. It points us to Christ, so he should be the focus. It points us to the work of Christ for what he did for us on the cross. So as we encounter that, we should examine ourselves. And finally, we saw the Lord's Supper points us to the body of Christ. So we should honor our brothers and sisters in the way we interact with them. When we consider what Christ has done for us at the foot of the cross, there's no room for thinking we're better than anyone else. No one here is anything but a sinner saved by grace they didn't deserve. Let's make that our status in everything we do and give Christ the glory. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.